Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, a history of modern Israel told through the lives of seven paratroopers. In June of 1967, Jews all over the world watched as Israel turned a perilous threat into a huge military victory. The symbol of that victory for many people was a photograph of paratroopers standing before the Western Wall, a sacred Jewish site that the soldiers recaptured for Israel in the fighting. Those paratroopers were reservists, and they were members of the 55th Brigade. Most of them were in their early 20s. They included socialist kibbutzniks and also religious Zionists. And a surprising number of them would go on to be leaders in the movements those two groups spawned, working towards peace or working towards state expansion, that is, through the establishment of settlements. In a new book titled Like Dreamers, Yossi Klein-Halevi examines the lives of seven of these men. Through their experience, he gives us access to the complexities of Israeli society as it has evolved over the past 50 years. Halevi grew up in Borough Park in Brooklyn, but he made Aliyah to Israel in 1982, and he's worked there ever since as a writer and a journalist. We are delighted to have him with us in the studio. Yossi Klein Halevi, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you, sir. At the beginning of your book, you write that the book is not about the paratroopers, but rather tells the story, as you put it, of Israel's competing utopian dreams. It's also not a book about war heroics. That said, it does begin with the fairly remarkable feats of the 55th Brigade in 1967. I wonder, can you talk briefly about what they accomplished and why was it such an important moment in the formation of Israel's identity? Well, the, um, this, this writing experience was really a, an immersion for me in a story that I thought I knew or at least knew the general outlines of and discovered more and more nuances which, which began to change the story completely. So one of the, one of the surprises was that the, the battle for Jerusalem was actually not supposed to happen. The, the paratroopers were, were on their way to Sinai where, where there was, where the war had already begun with Egypt, when uh, Jordan began shelling uh, West Jerusalem. And the paratroopers were then diverted back to Jerusalem. They had all of 12 hours to prepare for, uh, for the attack on East Jerusalem. They were, they were woefully unprepared in terms of intelligence. There was virtually no intelligence. There were hardly any maps, aerial photographs. And what was most stunning of all there was no there was no game plan you would think that that over the years israeli intelligence would have would have prepared options for a, a possible invasion of east jerusalem and there simply weren't any and so they they went in effectively blind and the government had not yet decided to take the old city they they had conquered east jerusalem they were waiting to move into the old city and uh, another surprise was that one of the uh, the most uh, vociferous opponents, at least initially, of uh, of entering the old city was the party representing religious Zionists, who, of course, later on went on to become the uh, the leaders of the settlement movement. You were fourteen at the time. You were living here in New York, in Brooklyn. What do you remember of that moment in nineteen sixty seven? Well, I, uh, you mentioned the photograph uh, earlier of, uh, of that wonderful photograph by David Rubinger of uh, the paratroopers looking up. Uh, and that photograph appeared in the newspaper on my 14th birthday. So I, I remember that 
just vividly. And, and, and I so much wanted, needed to be in Israel at that moment. And my father, who was a Holocaust survivor and had two brothers who had survived the war who were living in Israel and hadn't seen them since the war, said, uh, we're going. And he simply could not keep away anymore. And I think many Jews around the world felt the same. There was this, this sense of, I have to be in Jerusalem that summer. And what was it like there? For me, it was uh, our version of the summer of love, although uh, the summer of love in San Francisco was also a Jewish version, as it turns <laughs> out. <laughs> so, and uh, I actually remember uh, reading uh, an article in Time magazine that summer while I was in Israel about what was happening in San Francisco and being very pulled, the music and the, the, this, this, this almost messianic gathering of, of, the, of the tribes into San Francisco. And I felt that being in Jerusalem was like being in San Francisco. These were two centers of, of a kind of a redemptive consciousness where, where you just felt that, that we were celebrating existence. The Jews had actually pulled through. We'd made it. And the feeling in Israel that summer was this is the happy ending of Jewish history. We did it. It's over. There's, there's no more threat, uh, no more enemies. It's just a matter of time before the Arab world uh, realizes uh, reality and, uh, and makes peace with us. And, and so there was this sense of, uh, I would say, almost, almost uh, a messianic experience. Let's talk about the seven paratroopers whose lives you follow in the book. Uh, they go on to become variously a rock musician, a conceptual artist, a founder of Gushamunim, the settler movement, an economist. You have an anti-Zionist terrorist, and there are a few others. How or why did you choose this particular seven men? Well, I spent the first two years of what turned out to be an 11-year project uh, trying to figure out who, who's in the book? Who, who are my characters? As it turns out, there were 2,000 paratroopers who fought in Jerusalem in 67. And I met a good deal of them those first two years. And, and I was overwhelmed. I didn't understand the, the, the organization of the book. I didn't, I didn't see the story until, until one day it occurred to me that there are basically two groups and you mentioned this earlier, there are two groups, uh, two ideological groups in the paratroopers in those years. One are the, the kibbutznikim, the kibbutzniks on the, on the left, and the other were the religious Zionists, who, many of whom became leaders and founders of the settlement movement. I thought, well, well, that's interesting. Here you have the meeting point of these two utopian messianic streams in Zionism, the kibbutz movement, which dreamed of a kind of a secular Redemption, and that Israel would be a laboratory for uh, a purest democratic communism, and that on the other hand, the religious Zionists who believe that the return of the Jews to Zion would literally trigger the messianic era, and these two utopian charged movements meet symbolically, actually, at the most mythic moment in Israel's history, which is June 7th, 1967, at the wall. And I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's really interesting. And so I, started, I decided to focus on these two groups. And, and once, once I had those, those categories set, once I realized that the book 
is about the fate of Israel's vast dreams, the, the utopian dreams that we brought back with us to Israel and that we've, we imposed on this little strip of coastal plain uh, surrounded by, by, by countries that didn't want us there and filled with traumatized refugees from, from, from the 20th century's uh, uh, Jewish nightmares. Uh, that, became, that became the interesting story for me. What happened to the kibbutz? What happened to this utopian socialist dream of Israel that founded the country? What happened to the messianic dream of the settlers. And we always, at least I always, thought of these stories as separate stories. Left, right, Israel, these were separate narratives. And to find out that they actually served in the same unit, lived in the same tents, fought the same battles, and then in civilian life fought each other to to try to determine the nature of, of, of the Jewish state, that became for me a, an extraordinary human story of Israel and an, and an opportunity to tell the story of left and right as a single Israeli narrative. Two of the men of the seven whom you describe are men whom we come to know uh, very well. One of them is Arik Achman. He's a kibbutznik who went on to become uh, the chief intelligence officer for the 55th Brigade. And he spent most of his professional life uh, working as an economist. Another As, as a capitalist. As a capitalist, fact. excuse me, yes. <laughs> From kibbutzing to capitalism. Uh, another central figure you have is Yoel Ben-Nun, and he is a religious Zionist. He was a follower of the Rav, or Rabbi Cook, and he became a leader of the settler movement in Israel. As you say, these two men really couldn't be more different ideologically. But you do show that they have this shared devotion to the state of Israel. Uh, how exactly... Uh, did their visions uh, differ, and how do they overlap? Well, it's interesting you chose those two because, for me, they really are the emblematic figures of the book. I, I, I love all these characters. I love them as characters. I love them as people. I don't agree with, with any of them much of the time. Uh, I agree with all of them some of the time. And these two men in particular represent for me the the heart of the argument in the book because what the book really uh, ended up becoming and I didn't know this for many years into into the work uh, it's it's not just the the struggle between these two utopian movements but it's the struggle between the utopian camp in which left and right belong they're part of the same camp that saw the state of Israel as something more than a safe refuge for the Jewish people, that rejected the Zionist idea of normalizing the Jews and wanted redemption, each, each in radically different ways. And that's one camp. The other camp is the camp of the normalizers, those who, who, who were attracted to Zionism because it promised to solve the problem of anti-Semitism and, and, and create a safe haven for the Jewish people. And Arik Achmon is the ultimate normalizer. He leaves the kibbutz, very much leaves the kibbutz. He, 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 he reaches the conclusion that Israel needs to grow into the next phase of its evolution and the kibbutz has now outlived its usefulness and we need to, to no longer be this agrarian socialist fantasy but join the globalizing capitalist world. And Arik Achmon becomes the state of Israel's first privatizer. 
He, he's the CEO of Arkea, Israel's domestic airline, and he's the one who breaks the Histadrut labor union. And, and, and there's a scene that Arik described to me, which is in the book. It's one of my favorite moments where the, the head of the Histadrut says to him, how can you, a kibbutznik, Arik Achmon, how could you be doing this? Where is your shame? And it's just one of those telling moments of that, the intimacy of the Israeli story. And so that's one, that's, so Arik represents the normalizers. Yoel bin Nun comes out of the heart of utopian messianic Zionism. This story has to be about redemption because this is what the Jews always believed would happen. We would come back to Zion and the whole world would be, would be redeemed. And so Yoel grows up with this messianic ideology. He becomes one of the leading theologians of the settlement movement. And then he goes through his own crisis. It's interesting. This is just a, a parallel I thought of. To see that there has to be this redemption in the state of Israel is sort of like when you make a blessing and you don't honor the blessing. If you if you make the blessing over the bread and then you don't eat the bread, mm-hmm. then, the, then the blessing is wasted. So then in some ways you could see the thinking of, well, we can't have gone to war and then not have had a redemption. The war would have been in vain. Right. That's, uh, that's, that's, a, that's a lovely analogy. Uh, what um, what Yol bin Nun would say today, the mature, wise, elder Yol bin Nun, uh, would say that the very fact that we have a safe refuge for the Jewish people is an expression of redemption. And so this dichotomy between normalization versus uh, utopianism for Yol bin Nun simply doesn't exist. I want to talk for a moment about one of the paratroopers, Mayor Ariel. He is a rock musician uh, whom you compare to love, Bob Dylan. Love Mayor. <laughs> well, it becomes clear in the book that you love him. He died in 1999, and so he wasn't among the people who you got to interview for the book, and he's kind of an outlier among them. He didn't quite fit into the kibbutz life. He didn't really fit into the commercial world of popular music, even though he was a musician. He smoked pot. He had a uh, difficult relationship, marriage. He had a... He, let's, let's, let's not put... <laughs> <laughs> to find a point on it, he had a very public uh, open marriage. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and uh, in midlife, he seems to have become somewhat religious. Why did you include him in this story? First of all, because I just love Mayor Ariel, and I love his music, and I, I – if it were po- if it's possible at all to play one or two sure, of his songs, would love it. it would be fantastic. So uh, Mayor – the tragedy of Mayor – and the triumph of Mayer is that he he became Israel's most beloved musician after he died. And today, Mayer is regarded almost universally in Israel as the greatest singer, poet, composer of the last generation. He he is the soul of Israeli music as it began to move from the naive period of the Zionist campfire to postmodern Israel. And Mayer tracks that movement and also helped really shift Israeli culture in that direction. So he is, he is a seminal figure in, 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 the evolve, in evolving Israeli identity. A kibbutznik, a, a, someone who had a very uh, difficult relationship in some ways with, with his kibbutz. He wanted to be a full-time musician and his kibbutz wouldn't let him. And, and there he is stuck in the cotton fields and all of his friends are are creating this new Israeli music, and Mayer is 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 
on the periphery of this, and it's it's really one of the tragedies of his life, that he he that the kibbutz didn't support him, and that's part of it. And Mayor Mayor's story tells one aspect of of why the kibbutz movement declined, the inability of the kibbutz movement to understand itself as a spiritual movement. The kibbutz movement was relentlessly economic-centered, which it needed to be in its early years. But as it began to prosper, it didn't manage to make the transition to nurturing a more spiritual identity. I think the kibbutz movement is, is one of the most astonishing, no, the most astonishing creation of the Zionist revolution. And, and yet it didn't know how to make the, the transition into, uh, in, in, into a phase that would have been able to accommodate and nurture a Mayor Ariel. So he's very central to this, for me, uh, central to, to that part of the narrative that deals with the decline of the kibbutz. As the settlements are rising, the, kibbutz, the kibbutzim are declining. And Mayer is very much at the center of this movement. Which song of his in particular do you think uh, is most representative of his uh, body of work? You know, in, 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 you, you mentioned before that, uh, that he's in some sense the Israeli Bob Dylan. I wouldn't know how to answer that question about Dylan. You know, is it Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands? Is it, is it Visions of Johanna? Is, you know, it, you just don't it's know too where... Many. It's There's too many. And, and the truth is, that's, that's the case with Mayer, too. And if I, if I were really forced to, I'd come up with three or four songs. Laila Shaket Avar Al Kochoteinu Besuets, uh, our Forces Passed a Quiet Night in Suez City, uh, which he wrote uh, just after the Yom Kippur War. Maybe that, that would be a great song to play because we're in the period now of the 40th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War. And, um, and that song is very much on, uh, on the minds of Israelis today. And it's, it's, it's this beautiful and, and despairing song. of uh, He's writing about being on guard duty in Suez City in the aftermath of, of the war. And there's no particular danger. It's just a, another quiet, long, uh, pointless night on, on, uh, on Shmira, on guard duty. And, um, and Mayer just captures the, the forlorn soldier's sense, every soldier's sense of watching your time just being whittled away. And that, that song has become an anthem, especially for, for this generation of Israelis. Let's hear a little bit of it. Thank <laughs> you. 
פתאום נכנסת היא מדי צבא. נפלו איש על צברי שי בדרנית של חיילים, אבל הלילה היא שלו אם הוא רוצה. הייתה אשתו הראשונה, והם עכשיו נוסעים אליו. אני עכשיו אל השמירה יוצא. You made Aliyah in 1982. You were 29, I believe. And that was after many of the major events that you describe in the book took place. So the story in the book that you tell isn't really about you. Uh, but I wonder if you see yourself in any of the men whom you describe. In every single one of them. Uh, a different facet, of course. And um, uh, even Udi Adiv. Udi Adiv is, is in, you, you had spoken about Mayer as being... Uh, an outlier, Udi Adiv is the ultimate outlier in this story and in the Israeli story. Uh, Udi uh, was a kibbutznik from Gan Shmuel, a very important kibbutz of Hashomer Atzair, the, the, the Marx, at one time, Marxist Zionist uh, movement, and of course a paratrooper in 1967 who turned so far left that he joined a, a minuscule anti-Zionist movement called Matzpen, Compass, which existed in, uh, in the uh, 60s and 70s in Israel. And uh, he broke with Matzpen because it was too timid. And he went to Damascus, illegally, of course, in 1972, and uh, tried to start a joint Arab-Jewish anti-Zionist terrorist group. And was arrested on his return, spent twelve years in prison. This was the trial of the decade in israel and it it was another one of those move mo- moments when um Israeli society was just shocked to its core. We have a lot of those moments <laughs> <laughs> and one of the challenges I faced in writing this narrative history of Israel was at at what point do I need to start sparing the reader? <laughs> One more Israeli earthquake, you know, and, and so Udi Adiv uh, emerges from prison 12 years later, somewhat chastised, but still pretty ideologically committed to, to where, what his position had been. And um, when, I, when I first approached Udi and asked him uh, if he would cooperate with this project, I, uh, I told him that – I told him, first of all, What I'm interested in is not writing a separate biography of you, but of restoring you to the Israeli story, because you are part of, this, of a generational story. And, and I see this. These are the men who grew up with the state. They were born and raised with the state of Israel. They are the first generation of sovereign Israelis. And, and, I, and I told Udi that, that what this, the way I envision this book is telling the, the, the story through the spectrum of Of political religious cultural possibilities that your generation created in particular in response to to 1967 how that 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 big bang moment transformed uh, Israeli identity and, and society and he liked that very much he really wants to wanted to be restored to the Israeli story and he sees himself very much as an Israeli And, and, and Udi came to represent for me that small but significant part of the Israeli elite that fell out of love with the Zionist story and in effect adopted the Palestinian narrative uh, as opposed to the Israeli narrative. Now, 
And I told Udi a second thing. I said, I said, I'm a Zionist. Your politics are repugnant to me, but I can identify with you in a very strange and roundabout way. Because when I was a teenager, uh, I was uh, I was a, a uh, I was in the JDL, the Jewish Defense League. I was a follower of the radical right Rabbi Meir Kahana, and I was very much drawn to radical politics of a very different kind. But ultimately, I believe that these radical politics are all expressions of the same personality. And so, as I was writing about Udi and and, and entering into a story, I was able to imagine myself, not a a traumatized Brooklyn Jew uh, growing up in a Holocaust survivor family and seeing Mayor Kahana as my salvation, but but an Israeli teenager growing up on a radical left-wing Marxist kibbutz and, and, and embracing the Palestinian cause the way Udi did. It wasn't that far of a psychological leap for me. And I told this to Udi. And I, I wanted to be very clear up front uh, about my radical distancing from his politics, but my emotional closeness to, uh, to, to the radical personality. And, uh, and he was uh, totally cooperative. To your credit, it is hard to tell in the book whether you feel greater sympathy for those seeking to expand Israel's territory or for those people who want to end the occupation. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> no, that's, that's so I, – I can't tell you how happy that makes me. Um, here in the United States, though, I think that uh, American Jews are really expected to be in one camp or the other. And, and it's hard to have a conversation about it if you have sympathy for both sides. Uh, is it possible to have a nuanced position in Israel or are you just holding your uh, cards close to the chest? Well, <laughs> I, I'll, I'll answer that question uh, in a moment. I, I just want to step back and, uh, and talk for a moment about uh, the, the, this idea of, of two camps and, and feeling empathy for both. And that, for me, became in some ways uh, a crucial message of the book. It's both the the um, it's the it's the it's the style of the book. Uh, each character, in effect, speaks for himself when he's on stage, and and it is also very much the um, the the the, arc, the 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 discussion that I want to generate, and and and. I, I really don't care what a a reader's politics are when he or she comes into the book and when they leave the book. But what I care very much about is that if, say, you are a um, an Orthodox right wing Jew in in Queens, and and you instinctively identify with the characters on the right in the book, I want you to stand figuratively stand before Avital Geva, Kibbutznik was wounded in 67, who fought in almost every one of Israel's wars and became a founder of peace now. And I want you to test your certainties in front of him. Conversely, you are a left-wing uh, Jew living in Berkeley, 
uh, and uh, I want you to stand before Yoel bin Nun and, uh, and test your ideas of Israel in front of him. And, and I want the easy contempt that so many American Jews fall into toward the camp that they disagree with, I want that contempt to go. That, that contempt is, to my mind, uh, one of the great obstacles to the evolution of the Jewish people in this generation. We're stuck in a place that's deeply unhealthy. And in terms of Israeli society, because of, of, of what we've lived through in recent years, the first intifada, which, which um, d- discredited the, the notion of greater Israel for many Israelis, uh, and then the second intifada, which discredited peace now for many Israelis. We have a situation today where a majority of Israelis are, are really centrist. You know, after 40 years of this, of this bitter left-right schism, which this book chronicles, the victor ends up being the center, which is to say that Israelis today are a little bit left in that most Israelis agree that the occupation is a disaster and we need to do whatever we can to end it. At the same time, those same Israelis agree that with the right that you can't make peace with a Palestinian national movement that doesn't accept your legitimacy, your, your, your right to exist. And so we're, we, we're, we're, do, we, we're, we're hawks who want to be doves. That, that really is the, is the political profile of your average Israeli. But uh, really, to, to, to sum up and, and address your question, um, I think that Israeli society today is in a healthier place than, than, than paradoxically, perhaps, than where much of American Jewry is. Much of American Jewry is where we were in the 80s and 90s. American Jews are playing catch-up. They've, they've discovered the intensity of the dilemma and are choosing sides in ways that we did and... Today, I think most of us no longer do. Getting back to the book, what do you think it means that you can find not only in a single army but in a single platoon so many opposing voices who are yet connected to one another in so many ways? Well, it, it, that's, that's exactly what Israel is in its essence. It's the vitality of Israel. It's, you know, what struck me as I got to know these men was that here were guys who fought one war to the next. Every, every six years, sometimes every three years, they're in a war. Reserve duty several times a year because they were an elite unit. And between reserve duty and war, they're taking responsibility as citizens for the political and social development of Israel and vehemently arguing with each other. And and one of the things that I learned, first of all, is to appreciate the quality of our citizenry. We take it for granted, but I don't think there's another country, certainly not in the West, where you have that level of commitment of so many people who feel a sense of personal responsibility for the fate of Israel. It's, it's, it's really an extraordinary story. And, um, and the, other, the other side of it is that... Um, this this constant 
examination and self-examination is, is, is part of our story too. It's part of the story of the evolution of Israel because I, I actually divide for myself, I divide the characters in this book into two camps. It's not left and right. It's not kibbutznik and, and settler. It's those who evolved from, a, from an ideological position that was their starting point in their youth and those essentially who remained teenagers into their 50s, 60s and, and on. And it's the characters who evolve that I find much more interesting. And ultimately, those are the characters who are most emblematic of Israel because Israel is in a constant state of becoming. Yossi, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. Yossi Klein-Halevi is the author of Like Dreamers, the story of the Israeli paratroopers who reunited Jerusalem and divided a nation. It's out now from HarperCollins, and you should go get yourself a copy. If you like what you heard today, there's some good news. This was our 401st podcast. What that means, of course, is that there are 400 preceding podcasts that you can enjoy. Last week on Tablet's blog, The Scroll, we posted 10 of our favorites, although it's hard to pick a favorite, really. But you can start there, listen to those, and then move outward. Enjoy. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivry. We thank you so very much for joining us. Please join us again next week.